my teaching on the book of Revelation. Let's head to chapter 19, chapter 20. While you're turning there, let's just see on this brisk morning how your minds are working this morning. Name a state with a lot of mountains. Montana? West Virginia, Colorado. Here we go. Here's what this poll said. Utah, California, Wyoming, Montana, Alaska, and Colorado. I guess they don't consider Pennsylvania to have mountains, just hills. Um, if you ask someone from Texas what their favorite genre of music or style of music, what might they say? Country Western? Any others? Bluegrass? What's that? Rock and roll. Hip-hop. Here's what the poll said. Patriotic, gospel, pop, Mexican, rock, and country. I think there's a lot of Mexican right about now. Name something phone solicitors call you about. Health insurance? Your car. What about your car? Car warranties, yes. They say, your car warranty is about to expire, and you say, I didn't have one. Here's what they said. Roofing, tickets for the circus for police, uh, home security systems, oil and gas contracts, electric contacts, contracts, windows, and number one was different types of insurances. Name something people get in the mail besides a personal card or letter. <laughs> junk. That's it? Just Junk. <laughs> Bills? Okay. Here they said, the merchandiser. I added that one. Okay. Political solicitations. Anybody get those lately? Okay. Too many. Checks, packages, bills, magazines. Number one was junk mail. Name a type of building or place you go where it always seems cold. Be careful. An igloo would be a good answer. Yeah. Grocery stores? Doctors, here's what they said. Church. Nobody said church in this survey. Okay. Igloo, hotels, Department of Motor, Motor, yeah, you know what it is. School. Workplace number one was doctor's offices. So with all that fantastic stuff in mind, let's jump to a chart. There's a chart that some of you are familiar with. You can get it online. It's the 70 weeks of Daniel. And so it's based upon, and all of our prophecy discussion goes all the way back to this chart. Because if we understand our Bible in a literal sense, which by the way, when we say literal, we say that there might be symbolism. Because that literal is the way we speak. Do we ever use symbolism? Do we ever use exaggeration? Yeah. Okay, I'm so hungry I could... Okay. Um, and so we use that. So when we say literal interpretation, we're, we're not say, saying that Jesus said he's, he's a door physically, but he's speaking like we speak normally. And so approaching the Bible, somebody was just telling me last week that they were in a church uh, over by the Penn State area, and when they were there, the man or the woman, whoever the pastor was, made comment that the book of Revelation, you cannot understand it. It's purely symbolism, and it's just all, of, all it is is good versus evil, and everybody has their own interpretation.
Well, that makes for a real difficult time with the Word of God for us that we're, we're, we read in that book that if we read it and we understand it, in the first three verses it makes this promise. If we read it and understand it, we're going to have blessings from God. So we sh- if God says we can be blessed if we understand it and read it, we should be able to understand it. And so one of the ways to do that is you take your Bible and let your Bible interpret Bible. So you go all the way book to the, uh, back to the book of Daniel, read some of the prophecies there, and you compare them to the book of Revelation, and they overlay beautifully, perfectly, one on top of another. And uh, this would be a chart if you don't have one. Uh, see me. We'll print up a bunch of them. But it gives you the basic idea of what happens. Now the dates may be a little bit different depending upon whose date you start with the uh, the first treaty for our, the first, uh, uh, not treaty, what's the word? Edict. Edict for them to go back into the land. There was four of them given in the Old Testament. This chart takes the one from Ezekiel 7, uh, Ezra 7. And so you start going, moving forward from there, and you get into a period where it says after the first um, what we say, the 69 weeks after that, Messiah will come, he'll be cut off, the city will be destroyed. Well, we know all that happened. Jesus came right around 4, uh, four to 6 B.C. He was, he was killed right around 28 A.D. Jerusalem was destroyed in... 70 AD. Okay, and so there's a gap. And in that gap, the reason that he left a gap is it's the church age because the gospel went from the Jews only to Gentiles. Okay, and then it was a blending of the Jews and Gentiles. And that's where we're living in that prophetic gap right now that's just to the right center. And then we're going to pick up again with the last seven years, which are an Old Testament type of counting. And uh, they would belong to where that time period where God is going to see the temple reestablished. They're going to see him working specifically with the Jews. The witnesses that he really starts the witnessing through is the 144,000. What kind of people are they? Jewish witnesses, men, yeah, the 144,000. And so then it's going gonna, it's gonna to end with God coming back from heaven, Jesus Christ coming back, and all the nations are gathered to battle at one place or near one, one major city. Okay, it's, at, it's involving Armageddon. What's the major city in that region? Okay, Jerusalem. And he comes and he rescues just the remnant of the Jews. And then he says, after that, then the kingdom will come. So we're in Revelation and we're in the middle of chapter 19. We're beginning chapter 20 where he's starting to talk about this kingdom aspect and the coming of Jesus Christ. We've talked about all these things already, about when, the, when that last seven years happens and how it's broken down and all these different judgments happen. Satan cast out of heaven. Antichrist will become world ruler and there's more judgments. The, his system, city, capital, whole system, political, whatever, is going to be destroyed. Then there's the battle of Armageddon and Jesus Christ will come. He's announced in heaven the marriage of the Lamb is at hand. He will come down to this earth and 
he will then shortly thereafter set up his kingdom. That's what we're talking about is right at that spot, right here, the coming of Jesus Christ. So we pick up with the story and we start with verse 11 where we were last week where it says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and him that sat upon was faithful and true and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His head were, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. They were clothed in fine linen and white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that it would smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords. I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourself together under the supper of the great God. Let's pick up there. Okay, Jesus Christ is coming back. What is all happening at the time? This angel standing in the sun. There's a couple ways of interpreting it that some would say, Okay, he's literally in the sense of coming out of the sun, or the idea could be he's high in the sky and the sun is in his background. Um, your interpretation of that is not going to make a, a lot of difference, but what we do put together is that one vial of darkness has to be over at this time. So it's happened in these last days, last weeks, however, and this angel cries to the birds and says, come and gather and we're going to have this great supper. Why is that? Because this battlefield is filled with corpses. Whose corpses? When Jesus is coming back, who's going to, what's going to happen? The people of the world are going to oppose Jesus coming back. The armies of Antichrist are going to oppose. And there's going to take place a battle. Remember he said he's pressing out the winepress of his wrath. He's already predicted in chapter 16 and in chapter 14 that Armageddon is going to be a place where there's going to be a great battle, a final battle, and it's going to be like God taking the grapes, smashing him the wine press, and like the grape juice would flow out. Instead, what's going to flow in this valley? The blood. And he talks about that idea that it takes place. And so birds come and eat. And um, he mentions uh, back in chapter 14 how long this spread of, of death is going to be. And he mentions it's 1,600 furlongs or 200 miles. So it's a vast devastation in this battle of Armageddon leading up to the battle around Jerusalem. And he calls the birds. And it's interesting to note that right now in our world that when birds are migrating through Europe and South uh, in Africa and through that region that the, the predominant uh, number of birds who are migrating go right up through Israel. Uh, and then they branch off into you know, whether Europe or Eurasia and those regions. And so Israel has done research about how to deal with it because what could be the problem with birds coming through? It flights. Especially when you talk about flights, what planes are the Israeli government interested in making sure that they're not affected by migrations? They're military, okay? Does Israel have to maintain a, a military posture? Okay. So it fits in, and he calls the birds to, to flee, to feast. And um, he calls them, and he says there's going to be levels of all kinds of people. It's interesting how he expands upon this. That they may eat the flesh of kings, 
captains, mighty men, horses, them that sit on them, the flesh of man, both free and bond, small and great. And so this devastation is going to be amazing at all levels. Of The carnage is just huge. The military carnage is just absolutely astounding. And uh, it's basically filled with the flesh of people who have resisted Christ up to this point. And some of them may have been battling against each other. Some of them may have been battling uh, you know, in the sense of when Christ comes. Um, so we read about, it says that the armies who are gathered here, and we read about in the next verse, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against who? Who, who do they turn on? Okay, him that sat on the horse and against his army, you've got to refer back to the previous paragraph. Who sat upon the horse and he came with an army into a modern battle? It's Jesus Christ coming down from heaven. And so what's interesting is this passage says they have gathered to make war against Christ. We, uh, we know that there's other passages that, uh, that specifically tell us who gathered them. Do you remember any of that? Do you remember who is, who is moving them to gather at this spot? Okay, there's two different, um, and the, the people involved are Antichrist, obviously, and, and his leadership. But we read in chapter, in chapter 16, we read about there's the three frogs that were demonic. Do you remember this? Let's back up, because we already studied it, but let's make sure we put the book together that he, we expanded the way he's talking about. In chapter 16, he's given us this information. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. He said, come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And so demons are going to be behind some of these military movements that take place. Can you think of any other text that talks about another um, other beings involved with moving them. This one says it's demons that are initiating all of this. Do you remember another text? Flip to chapter 14. Okay. Let me, let me see if chapter 16 does it. Yeah, you're right at chapter 16. Let's just stick there. Verse 15, right after that. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Who is the one talking about in chapter 16, verse 15? Who comes as a thief? Okay, you have other passages that he comes as a thief, and that would be God himself coming. And remember, most of those thief passages out of Matthew 24, people say it's the rapture. It's not the rapture. That Matthew 24 is all about the second coming. And he's coming as a thief in that unannounced. And verse 16 says, he gathers them together in the place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. That same idea he mentioned in chapter 14, where he makes that comment about the idea of him that sat on the cloud was told to thrust in his sickle. The angel thrusts it in in the wine press that we already mentioned. So you have two different spiritual realms, entities, both involved with gathering people together. Okay? Is, is that a conflict? A contradiction? 
No, the demons think they're doing it to, to, do, uh, to advance their purposes. But ultimately, whose purposes are they advancing? God Almighty. And so he's the one doing it. He's the one that's leading in this. Uh, that he's allowing demons the activity even to do what they think they are going to do. But ultimately they're going to bring about the, the purposes of God. And so Zechariah 14 is one of those other Old Testament passages. Last week we showed you a few. This one talks about some of this battle that's taking place. Watch how he talks about Behold, the day the Lord is coming, your spoil will be divided. I'll gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem, the city today that shall be taken, houses rifled, women ravished, half the city shall go into captivity, and the remnant of the people not be cut off. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. So this verse has some ideas that Jeremiah might be preaching that has some indications that they might look at and say, okay, when they were battling Babylon. But this part of it clearly brings it to being that this is going to be with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he's going to come into the Mount of Olives. And then watch when his coming. Watch the warfare. And this shall be the plague which the Lord will strike all people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. Their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize his hand. This is, this is me in my silliness. Is there any type of... Um, do we have any type of weapons today that, that could do that to people? Okay. So could God coming and could the sword out of his mouth, could it be as powerful as a nuclear weapon? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's talking about just great devastation here in the text. And so they gather, you know the uh, situation, they gather in Armageddon, the Valley of Decision, which is, you know, in proximity to Jerusalem. Their initial purpose in gathering will be this, to destroy Jerusalem and the Jews. We just read that. All the nations are gathered together to attack Jerusalem and destroy the Jews. But it turns into a fight that they're going to turn and not just do the Jews, but when Jesus appears, they're going to gather to fight against him when they see him physically come down. And all of this is going on, and this is at the very end of the tribulation because God stops everything, all the battle and everything at this moment. What else is happening around this same time? You need to put the previous ver chapters together with this e these events at this moment. What has already... Well, let's back up and let's see. Let's go to the seventh bowl. Okay? That would be about chapter what? Got to go backwards. Chapter 16 has the different bowls or vials. Go to the seventh vial. Where do you see it in chapter 16? Verse 17. Okay. The seventh vial poured out, seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven saying, It is done, or it has arrived, the end is here. And there were many voices, thunders, lightnings, and a great earthquake, such was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. The great Babylon came into remembrance to give her into her cup, the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon the men, what else? The great hail, which was about how much did you say at the time we were there? Yeah, anywhere from 90 to 120 pounds. They blasphemed God for the plague was exceeding great. 
And then, so at this moment, there is also this other devastation taking place that is going to be happening. And the city ends up being divided, and that's part of God's plan, according to Zechariah. The people in the city of Jerusalem, the remnant of Jews, will come out and run to Jesus Christ. And he will rescue them as he destroys the enemies. Now, the, the enemies will be absolutely, totally defeated. And the reason we know that is, let's go back to our account that we were talking about. He said um, in this passage, he said that in verse 17, the, the birds are, are told to gather. Verse 18, he, def he defines which people were beaten. He talks in verse 19 who those armies were. He says in verse 20, the beast was taken and with him the false prophet who and uh, that were at the miracles and he which deceived them with the mark of the beast and uh, those that worshiped, both were cast alive. So what you have here is clearly at, at all these events taking place. They're climaxing at this moment with Jesus coming down. And you have clear indication that when Jesus comes back, he is going to totally defeat evil and all the evil doers of that time. How do we know that? Well, we already talked about the birds. They're coming before the battle even begins. Come on. You're going to, come on, get ready, birds. You're going to have a feast. You have the idea that the carnage is so great, eat to your full to your, till you're filled up. We have the idea that in verse 18 that everyone in this army is going to be beaten. Leadership all the way down to who? Well, if you look down in verse 18, the, the free, the bond, the small, the great. And it's so devastating that this army cannot bury its dead. What does that indicate about the army? There, there's nobody left. I mean, even if, if you're going to bury anybody, if there's carnage, you want to bury the leaders, but the leaders aren't being buried. And so you have this idea that there's such great devastation that takes place that he's, he even points out, he even says in verse 20, the ringleaders, the leaders of these armies, the ones who have empowered these armies, who have, um, who have been leading the armies, they're going to be taken care of. That is Antichrist, the false prophet. And he specifically tells us these people had the ability to do powerful things. He mentions that. Did you catch it? He's, he's wanting us to identify that even these powerful human beings, what are they compared to Jesus Christ? Okay, so he mentions that. And even though he says they were able to influence the whole world, force people to take the mark of the beast, you see he's rehearsing this for a reason, to help us to understand how great Christ is to be able to overcome these type of individuals. Because sometimes we sit back and we say, oh, the world is so bad. And by the way, the world is bad. Okay. Uh, and we say, it's so bad, it, it, nothing can stop it. Okay, this, this text is telling us he's going to stop it. He's going to stop it. Okay? And he says they're going to be cast in the lake of fire. Now what's the lake of fire? Is it hell today? You're not sure. Okay. Um, let me just jump in and, and confuse you totally. Okay. Is heaven... Has heaven always been, where, where souls of saints go, has it always been the same throughout history? 
Okay, it, you're absolutely right. No is the answer. In the, in the prior to Christ uh, going to, uh, opening up heaven, what was heaven called? Hades, the place of death. Okay. In, the, in Luke, what does he refer to the pleasant part as? Paradise. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So the place where the saints went, they went to a paradise. But after Jesus ascended on high, that place of paradise was transferred to what we know as saints today in heaven, where they're at. That heaven will eventually, during the kingdom be blended with the earth in the kingdom. And then eventually what happens to that heaven and the earth? They're going to be totally destroyed and then there's going to be a new heaven and new earth. So even as we talk about heaven, there is different phases or experiences of it, but it's always got the characteristics of what? Paradise, which means what? Good? Bad? Okay, okay. So it's where the Lord is, where there's communion. It's always got the idea of pleasant, peace, comfort, positive. Okay. Hell, okay, and you, you said Hades, which is a broad term. Hades, it could refer to any place of the dead, but it could also be referring to what we call hell to hell. And in that period, it was a place where when Jesus went on earth and he had a paradise, you had a, the paradise separated from hell. Yes? Remember this story? There was a great chasm and they could not go between. Do you remember this? Okay. Then that was before that heaven was taken and moved into where God sits on a throne. And Jesus was the first one to, to get into that heaven and bring then those others with him. And so that hell that's there, that continued. That's the hell we have today. But eventually, what's going to happen to that hell? It's going to be cast into the lake of fire. We'll see that in the end of the book of Revelation. That, that the lake of fire, actually we'll see it next chapter. The current hell we have today, if you want to be really technical with it, people will be taken out of the current hell today and put into the lake of fire. Oh, that's a respite. Okay. What is the lake of fire? Who is it made for? Satan and his angels. Okay, so we read about this that the first two people that go into the lake of fire are who? We just read it here. Antichrist and the false prophet. Satan doesn't even get there yet. Okay, but these two end up going there, this place that's going to be the permanent, ongoing, forever and ever aspect or phase of hell. They're there. And so they're put there, and uh, eventually every, all the other unsaved will, will join them there. So the very first occupants of this lake of fire are Antichrist and the false prophet. They don't even go to the hell that people go to today. They just get, you know, do not advance, do not pass gold, do not get $200, you know, whatever it is. Go directly to the lake of fire is what happens to them. And so we also know that this is going to be an absolute total defeat, the remnant. He makes it clear that even the, the leftovers, look at verse 21. He's talking about the army that was slain. The remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse. 
that proceeded out of his mouth. And so he's talking the leftovers of the army is going to be wiped out. So the carnage the, is absolute and, and the defeat is so total when Jesus comes. And it doesn't stop there because you and I have a chapter division, but remember it didn't have it in the original language. It talks in verse 21, the remnant were slain of the, by him that had the sword proceeding from his mouth. The fowls, they were filled with the flesh of all these different people. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand and he lays hold on who? Who gets grabbed now? Or who gets arrested? We read the old sir, the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and his other name in this passage, Satan. So he wants you to understand there's no, there's no misunderstanding here. Satan himself is going to fall victim to Jesus Christ. And Jesus will have him taken away. The, the point of this second half of 19 is Jesus is a one-man wrecking crew. And he's going to come and he's going to be... This is the Lord that we worship. How, the, if you want to put a word over, the, over this entire section of the chapter, what word would you put over it to describe Jesus? What's that? Victorious, Victorious excellent. What else? Any other words that strikes you about him? Awesome. Conqueror. Okay. Powerful. Yes? Okay. So th that's the whole point of this text, getting you to understand that Jesus will totally take out all these different evil, and it's not going to be just a, okay, we have in the Middle East right now, Israel goes into Gaza, and everybody wants this to be done yesterday. What's the reality? It's going to take time. Yes, no? Okay, it's going to take some time to do what they're doing. Um, we want the Ukrainian war to be done. But what happens with it? We're, we're, you know, we're running up to the two-year uh, anniversary of the invasion. Wars that men conduct are usually long and protracted. What about the war that Jesus conducts? <laughs> In God's mind, it's done. How quick does this all happen? I mean, how quickly does he take out a world state-of-the-art army? Um, yeah. He's, it says that, if we remember, it's, it's said a couple times in this chapter. They're slain with the sword of him that sat upon the, uh, the horse, the sword that comes out of his mouth. What are we talking about? What is the weapon that he uses? It, it says a sword, but what, his words... His words, okay? The, the point is he's trying to get you to understand that his words are, uh, yeah, they're powerful. He, how do we know that he's so powerful with his words? He created everything. How? By speaking. Okay. He, during his earthly ministry, he spoke and things happened. He, to, to a raging sea, what did he do? Yeah, just be calm. How quickly did it happen? Immediately, it says, or instantly in Mark, it makes it clear. So how quickly will he, speak, will he have to speak? That's, how quickly does speaking, you know what I mean. Okay. Some of us speak faster than others. I'm on the slow end. Um, but yes, I can get more in that way. How long does it take for him to speak a word that says you're done? 
Yeah, so, you know, the, it's an amazing thing. It's really fast. It's really fast. They, they might be taking a while to get gathered for this big battle, and within seconds it's done, and you lost. It's just profound. Absolutely profound how that he'll take over with just his speed, which again is another proof of his greatness, his majesty, his awesomeness. And so just wrapping it up, I put this thing in, we mentioned this about five weeks ago. He displays absolute authority by a swift, sudden victory over all of his opponents. Name them. What opponents does he beat at this moment? Satan. The false prophet. Somebody saying demons? The demons. The demons are behind this army. If, do you remember? The armies were raised by demons that dried up the river Euphrates. He got tied all together. So you have all of these different individuals that are going to be, you know, powerful. And Jesus takes them out. And what do we do? <laughs> What'd you say? We. We just, we're riding along for the show. He doesn't need us to do it. It's, 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 and he doesn't need weaponry. He just speaks. He is amazing. He is absolutely amazing. It's, how powerful his word is? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If we want to take it back to that, you know, his written word, the power behind it, it's amazing. Okay, let's ask this question. And, and just let's do a whole backup and say, why does Jesus come at this time? Okay. Okay, if he didn't, evil would end up destroying everything. We read that in Matthew where that unless the Lord comes back, all earth would be destroyed. So that's a truism, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you several thoughts that are going to encapsulate all of, all of your different uh, thoughts together, I'm sure. He's got to come to fulfill prophecy. If he doesn't come and the prophecy isn't fulfilled, okay, we, then his character, his faithfulness is in question. So, there are many prophetic passages that talk about him descending from heaven physically. I mean, we've, we, we're talking in the book of Acts, and you remember this clearly, that when he ascended up into heaven, the disciples are standing there watching, and all of a sudden, an angel says, why do you stand here watching? This same Jesus shall... Yeah, oh, there it is. He shall come you know, in the heaven in the same manner. And we read, so we read lots of different passages that he's going to come. S again, and I've just, these are just so minuscule number of them. He's coming to judge the nations because of their unbelief. There is going to be payday someday. Okay, and so this judgment, we read about how God has, Jesus says that God gave him the authority. He's going to be the one to judge. So part of his coming at this time is to bring about judgment. So, and that's an important aspect. Men are going to have to answer to Jesus Christ. What does the scripture say? Every knee shall. Okay, so it's going to happen. It's going to happen. He does this as, Larry, you just mentioned, he does this to deal with evil. 
he will remove Satan from the earth and his ability to influence mankind. That is one of the reasons he's coming. You want to put in parentheses for a while. We'll, we'll come back to that. Okay, but he's going to remove Satan from the earth and he'll have no ability to influence. Satan will be vacant totally during the kingdom that's going to be taking place on earth. Yes. Okay. So we read about that, uh, that happening in chapter 20. He does this to establish his kingdom on earth. And I put all these different definitions in because we're going to talk about them if we have time to just uh, touch on it. I put in physical, universal, eternal. Because there are people today that are teaching in churches right now that are teaching we are already in the kingdom of God. And you and I go, there are people teaching, there are preachers teaching, Satan is already confined. And you and I go, if this is heaven on earth, well, yeah, it doesn't, give us, it doesn't give us much hope. Okay. But then again, if you, if you have a hopeless message, this makes sense. He does so to establish his kingdom. And again, you have multiple passages. Christmas, we sing about this. We sing about him, the, uh, the idea, his name, uh, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Did I get the notes halfway right? Nah, okay. Okay, I'm not going to the Messiah sing-along. That won't work for me. Okay. And then that passage ends with the increase of his government, you know, that it's going to be universal. The expansion, literally, is the idea of the increase. The expansion of his government, there's no limits to it. And so you have these passages. Now, Satan's defeat. Let's just touch on it just slightly. Okay. Satan, in this passage, he gets grabbed by one of God's angels, and the angel lays hold on him, and he binds him with a chain, and he casts them into, by the idea of, you know, he's sealing him. He's not going to be able to escape. And the reason this is happening is stated in the text. Okay? It says, he cast him in the bottomless pit and shut him up and set him, a seal upon him so that he should deceive the nations. Okay, so the goal here is God wants the deception to stop. And so Satan gets put into the, uh, the word is, we read it bottomless pit in our English, it's abusa, it's the abyss, okay? And it shows up seven times in the book of Revelation. Uh, ask me where it's at, I don't know, okay? Um, but it's, it's, in its context, it's usually referring to the prison place where demons have been kept. And so Satan's going to be put there. And we get the clear, path, the clear idea, he's, he's got a, a sentence that's for how long? The text gives us it. A thousand years. Okay. Is a thousand years a long time? Yes and no. Okay, yes it is for us the way we operate now. No, in light of, to God, a thousand years is as but a day with the Lord, and in light of eternity, but it's going to be a thousand years, and we're going to live through this period the way we mark time now, during that thousand years. And so he'll deceive the nations no more for a thousand years. And there are those who will say, well, you can't take a thousand years literally. How many times? Look at, just for, for your, 
How many times does he mention a thousand years in these next few, in these verses? Where do you see it? Verse 2? Verse 3? Verse 4? Verse 5? Verse 7? Verse 6? Every verse in this section mentions it's a... So what's God want us to understand? It's a thousand years. Okay? If you repeat something long enough... Okay, he's got a point. And then after the thousand years, and we read about it in the text, that it says here in verse 3, he'll be cast in there till the thousand years be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed for a little season. So he's going to be taken off the scene, unable to influence people, but then he's going to be given freedom. Is that because he wins a second chance and he repents and he's a changed man. Okay. That's not what happens. But the point is, think this through. Since the time he fell, when that happened, I don't know, between Genesis 1 when God created and everything was good on the seventh day, and then we read that Satan, somewhere in that, between that seventh day and the time that he tempts, Satan falls. Okay, because God saw everything that he created was still good by the seventh day. And so then Satan falls somewhere in there. We're not given exactly when. We hear about it later on that he got lifted up with pride. But since that time, let's say it happened on day eight of creation. From day eight of creation up until the end of the tribulation, the coming of Christ, what has Satan been doing? He's just wreaking, having, attacking, doing whatever. This is the first time he's taken off the scene to stop bothering people. That should cause us to... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an amazing thought when you think about it. There is something else that's going to happen at this time. And it's not in this text, but we've already looked at it before. So what we want to do is we want, let me read a couple verses and then I want to bring this into being. Let's go to verse 4 of chapter 20. I saw thrones and them that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Christ and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image. Those are the believers coming out of the tribulation. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Then he goes back, he says, this is all the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. They shall be the priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Um, Are we part of the first resurrection? Okay, do you understand what he's doing here? The first resurrection is resurrecting those people who end up in the kingdom with God Almighty in heaven on earth. Are we part of the first resurrection? Are we going to end up in the kingdom? Living. Yes, we are. So when we think the first resurrection, we always think a momentary thing. Okay, we think everything's got to be chronologically one, two, three, four. First resurrection is just the resurrection of all the blessed. It comes in phases. It comes, when do we get our glorification? At the rapture, okay? 
Seven years go by, and when do the saints that were killed in the tribulation, when do they get their resurrection? Before the kingdom starts, at the end of that. And they're part of the first resurrection as well. But there's a seven-year gap. That doesn't make any difference. It's part of the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection of believers. What's the second resurrection? Of who? The unbelievers. And so again, don't think Western that says, well, first means the rapture, second is now. No. First is a concept, the coming of Christ. Let me give you a parallel. Okay? Jesus is coming again. Yes? It's called his, his second coming. There are two phases of his second coming. Right? One, he's going to come to the air and take us away. The other phase, he's going to come to the earth. Okay? This is part of his coming again, but it has two phases. Hell, I'm sorry, heaven. Did heaven have different phases that we already talked about? Yeah, so when, so when you think sometimes, when you think of the idea of the first or whatever, think of who's involved. Not when, but who or what. And that helps us out when we think. So we know that the people that are going to be going into the kingdom are people who are going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. That has to take us back to what Jesus said in Matthew 25. Go back to Matthew 25 when he defined and described this same event. In tying in scriptures, he doesn't give all the details again in Revelation. He gives only some details, but back to Revelation 25. I'm sorry, Matthew 25. Matthew 25. <clears throat> Here we go. Verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all of his holy angels with him, then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him, what's going to happen? Gather all nations. He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides what? The sheep and goats. He shall, he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats will go to... Then the king shall say to them on the right hand, Come, blessed of you, inherit what? The kingdom. Inherit the kingdom of my father, inherit, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison. Then shall the righteous answer and say, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you? When were you thirsty and we gave you drink? When did we see a stranger and look on you and naked and clothe you? And when, they, when did we see you sick or in prison? And the king shall answer, Verily I say unto you, Insomuch as you have done it unto the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. Put it in its context. This is happening at the end of the tribulation. Who are the brethren that he's referring to? The Jews. The Jews. And then he goes on, he says, and the king shall answer and say, I, uh, I'm sorry, then to those, verse 50, uh, 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from ye, cursed into everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger. And they shall answer and say, When did we see this happening? Verse 44. And he says in verse 45, Verily I say unto you, insomuch as ye did it not to the least of these, ye did it not to me, 
these shall go into, away into everlasting destruction. What's a sign of belief or unbelief during the tribulation period? Help or attack which group of people? The Jews. Because God's dealing with the Jews at that time. So what happens, this, this is the judgment that occurs right at this moment. At the end when Jesus is there, he's going he's gonna to sort out the people who have survived, not the armies, but the rest of the world. The people who have survived the tribulation. They're going to be gathered together and he's going to be saying, do you go into the kingdom or don't you in the, go into the kingdom? And it's not going to be eeny, meeny, miny, mo. It's going to be based on, yeah, their, their sense. How did they, did they have belief enough that they followed the word of God and they were helping out the Jews? And so that judgment takes place. There's more judgments, but I'm being judged that I'm going over the clock. So we will stop there and we're going to pick up what happens. By the way, let me ask you this question. How much time between his coming, second coming, and the kingdom starts? What is it? You're close. It's longer. We are, we are, what is it? 75. You got it. Door number two, you got it. Okay. <laughs> the Bible t- clearly tells us there's a 75-day gap between his coming and the start of the kingdom. What's he do during that time? We'll pick up next week. You, you have the answers when you come back.